extremely pleased to introduce Jane, Jane Clark to you this morning. Jane is a student of the Bashara School. Did your first course in 1978? Yep. Yep. And since then has been very much involved in the study of Ibn Arabi, most particularly with the Ibn Arabi Society, and she's the librarian of the Ibn Arabi Society. She's been involved with the archiving of the Ibn Arabi manuscripts, the wealth of which is in Turkey, together with Stephen Hilfenstein. She has many, many more things that could say about her. She's an extraordinarily wonderful person, really, <laughs> in a polymath. And very kindly, she's coming to talk to us today about Saladin Comedy. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. I was asked by Hakim to talk on Sajidin Konavi and his relationship to Rumi, and I'm going to do my best on this. And I must say that this has been a great pleasure to do, whatever you may think about the talk, it's been an enormous pleasure for me to spend the last two or three weeks thinking about Sajidin Konavi and looking into the sources and such like, so thank you very much for asking me to do this. It's particularly appropriate to talk about Sajidin Konavi this year because it's probably the 800th, un 800th anniversary of his birth in 1208, probably in Malatya, in southern Turkey, a kind of few hundred miles east of Konya. Probably because we don't really know exactly when and where he was born, but this is probability. But whatever the real situation, his life and work will be celebrated this May um, in Konya by the first ever conference devoted specifically to him and it will be held close to the tomb which many of you will have visited and which this picture will remind you of and then I'm going to talk about Sajidin Konavi and Rumi if there's, if there's time I'm going to talk about Sajidin Konavi mostly in terms of the relationships that he had with people and the significance that um, this has for us today Sajidin Konavi lived in an interesting place at an interesting time and he was surrounded all his life by spiritual giants with whom he had various types of relationship. First of all, of course, he was a child and a student. His father, Majdadin, was a man of standing in both spiritual and worldly matters, an aristocrat who had important roles at the court of Seljuk Empire in Konya and in the service of the Caliph of Islam, who was one of the last to be in residence in Baghdad. He was in addition a man of learning and a spiritual teacher. He befriended Ibn Arabi whilst he was staying in Mecca and invited him to a position in Anatolia, where he came under the patronage of the Sultan and so was able to settle and bring up a family. Majdudin and Ibn Arabi were said to be best friends. And when Majdudin died, Ibn Arabi took on the guardianship of the young Sadruddin when he was probably about eight years old and raised him alongside his own son, Saeedadin. Ibn Arabi also became his teacher and he showed such aptitude for learning and for spiritual intuition that he eventually made him his spiritual heir in preference to his two sons. And later on, we'll have a look at what this airship entailed. It seems that Sadruddin went to Damascus with the Sheikh when the Sheikh left Anatolia in about 1222-23 
at which point he would have been about 14, and so he received his general education, which in the Islamic world would have been in Quran and Hadith, etc., in one of the great intellectual centres of the Islamic world. In his teens, he also came under the tutelage of al-Hadadin al-Kamani, another important spiritual figure, also an aristocrat, a prince in fact, and a man of great influence. He was an eminent teacher and a poet, an exponent of the path of chivalry, and was a close friend of both Ibn Arabi and Jalaluddin Rumi. We have a translation of al-Kamani's poems done by Peter Lamborn Wilson, um, which you can find, I think. Um, Then, as a mature man, when he became a sheikh in his own right, Sadruddin attracted an extraordinary group of people to study under him, many of whom over the centuries became as famous, or perhaps even more famous, than he was. People such as the Persian poet Mm. Fakhruddin al-Iraqi, the philosopher encyclopedist Qutbin al-Shirazi, the metaphysician al-Furhani, and his close friend and major pupil, Muwayyadin al-Jandi, who wrote the first full commentary on the Fasus, and in turn educated a line of great Ottoman thinkers and commentators, such as al-Kashani and Dayud al-Kaisari. As far as contemporaries were concerned, this was an age when the Islamic world was bristling with great thinkers and mystics. And Sadruddin, who did not live his whole life in Konya, but spent substantial amounts of time in Damascus, Egypt, and even for a short time in Persia, is known to have come into contact with many of them, either by personal contact or by relationships with their immediate followers. So many of his own students, for instance, were disciples of Shibanuddin Surhuwadi or Najam al-Kubra or Ibn Sabin or Ibn al-Farid in Egypt. During the last ten years of his life, when he was teaching and writing with the greatest intensity, actually, that's wrong, 20. Sadruddin lived in Konya, where Jalaluddin Rumi also was at the height of his powers. The two men were almost exact contemporaries, being born and dying within a year of each other, and they dominated the intellectual scene of the city between about 1250 and their deaths in 1273 and 74. So I say in the last part of this talk, we'll look particularly at this relationship. Sadruddin was a man of stature and influence in both the worldly and spiritual realms. He inherited his father's position eventually at the Seljuk court. And when he finally returned to Konya, again, we don't know when, but he was there by 1253, when he was 42 or 43, he was granted a large house by the protector of the city, where he kept a substantial household and taught his students. He was extremely learned in all branches of knowledge. He had studied Hadith in Damascus with the very eminent scholar Al-Hadabani and became as well known as a master of Islamic law as for his knowledge of the mystical sciences. In Konya, he was given the position of Sheikh al-Islam, meaning that he was the leading teacher of his time. He studied, also studied philosophy and medicine and was well known for his pleasure and ability in debate. And just to mention that this interest in the sciences and in fact this very broad spectrum of knowledge is something he had in common with his master, Ibn Arabi, who also shows in his work a great awareness of the leading edge of science in his work. 
For instance, the science of optics and all these mirror images that you get in Ibn Arabi's work represented what today would be the equivalent of talking about quarks or quantum physics within the Islamic world. But despite his obvious individual stature, Sadruddin's main function was be a transmitter of a certain kind of knowledge at a time when Islam was going a major sea change. So Sadruddin Konovi was the great establisher of what we now call the Akbarian tradition. He preserved it, literally preserving Ibn Arabi's written works in Konya, as we shall see. And in his own works and teachings, he re-expressed the Sheikh's ideas in a form which was suitable for the times in which he lived, and which, as we have already hinted, attracted some of the finest minds of that time to their study. His writings and teachings laid the foundation for the great dissemination of this knowledge, which took place in the following centuries. When I say that Islam was undergoing a sea change, I mean that during the 13th century, the old Islamic order died in a very real sense. It was a century in which the Franks retook most of Andalusia, which was, of course, Ibn Arabi's homeland. And whilst in the Levant, the Franks were again firmly established in Jerusalem and Acre, etc. Most importantly, in the east, the Mongols were sweeping through Khorasan and Persia, including Konya, pillaging and burning. They initiated a terror for which we have no equivalent in the present day. There was a massive movement of population going on, and the cities of the middle areas of the Islamic Empire were full of refugees. And this, of course, is one of the main reasons for the intellectual vitality of the time, as people and cultures intermingled. The presence of Ibn Arabi and Rumi, for instance, in Konya, swept into the city from the far west. Ibn Arabi, a Rumi, um, a, a refugee from the Franks, taking Andalusia, and Rumi, a refugee from the Mongols, coming down through Balkh and Afghanistan both swept into Konya by the political and social upheaval, exemplified a situation that was going on everywhere. The Mongols reached Baghdad, the very heart of the Islamic Empire, where they destroyed the caliphate and burnt the books in the Great Library. Devastating. Sadruddin Konovi himself in Konya had a dream on the night of this event in which he saw the Prophet lying prostrate on the ground, apparently dead, all around him pronouncing him dead. He came close to him and saw that there was just the faintest trace of breath which Sadruddin Konovi announced to all those around him. He was right and Islam did revive, but the old order had gone. The Baghdad Caliphate was never and has never been revived. The new shoots that the Dar al-Islam threw up, initiating 400 years of continuous expansion and virtual global domination came from the new territories such as Anatolia with the rise of the Ottomans in Turkey and the Balkans the Safavid Empire in Persia and eventually the Mughal Empire in northern India these were Persian speaking cultures not Arabic speakers and they brought many innovations as they rose to power the new order was very different from the old including these innovations was their adoption of Ibn Arabi's ideas as formulated by Sadruddin Konovi as the basis of their spirituality or in fact their whole intellectual perspective. By the 16th and 17th century 
the Islamic Empire stretched from Vienna to China and culturally and spiritually formed a remarkable homogenous era. For instance, Professor Francis Robinson, in a recent study of text studies in the Madrasa or the Islamic universities, in this period notes that the similarities in these three great empires far outweigh the difference. And in both in the official knowledge in the Madrasa curriculum and the Sufi orders which taught outside their walls, they drew predominantly from the Persian and Anatolian thinkers of the 13th and 14th centuries, not only in mystical ideas, but in philosophy, law and natural sciences, also in poetry, hence the work of Rumi, Attar and Iraqi was equally disseminated throughout this huge region. And this was because this cultural milieu within which Konya was seated, not just Konya itself, was the seed from which the regeneration of Islam after the Mongol invasion sprouted. The importance of Sadruddin Konavi is that he placed Ibn Arabi's vision and exposition into the very heart of this seed in such a way and in such a form that the thought of Ibn Arabi and the poetry of people like Rumi, Attar and Iraqi were the dominant ethos, the dominant ethos for the Ottomans, the Persians and the Mughals from the 14th to the 18th or even 19th century, not only in an intellectually abstract way. Ibn Arabi's ideas were the explicit foundation upon which the Ottomans successfully managed a vast empire consisting of many different cultures, races and religions. And in the Mughal emperor's attempt to form an India in which Hindu and Muslim were equal. This is another talk, but I mention this only to give a taste of Sadruddin's achievement and to flesh out this statement that he was above all a transmitter and a successor. Al-Jandi refers to him, this was his major student, Al-Jandi, as the perfect man of his age, the pole of the poles of his time. We've already mentioned Al-Sheikh Al-Islam and the Khalifa of the seal of Mohammedan sainthood. We are used to thinking of Khalifa perhaps as vice-regent, but it's also successor, meaning the designated heir. And Al-Jandi's use of this phrase Khalifa of the seal of Mohammedan sainthood so soon after his death shows that both Sadruddin and his immediate circle were quite aware of the elevated nature of the knowledge they were dealing with. The eventual great influence of the Sheikh's work came not so much through original works by either Sadruddin or Ibn Arabi, but through works of his successors such as Al-Fanari, Al-Farani, Daud al-Qaisari and Jami. For all these works, people based their works on the formats which Sadruddin established. The White Pursuits, for instance, which we study here, written in 17th century Ottoman lands, is based upon the format begun by al-Jandi under Sadruddin's supervision, based upon his notes taken during Sadruddin's teaching sessions in Konya. The whole manner and tone of the commentary, as with all the commentaries, is imbued with Sadruddin's terminology and his approach, which systemised Ibn Arabi's ideas in a way that the Sheikh himself did not do. But to say that he systemised does not at all mean that he bookishly studied and collated his master's works. It's clear that Sadruddin wrote from his own divine inspiration and followed Ibn Arabi's exposition because he had come to see the truth of the matter for himself. In fact, he describes in Nafahat 
how Ibn Arabi himself encouraged him to write down and expose his own insights and intuitions. He wrote a number of very important books, probably around 20 altogether, with only about eight or nine really major works, which in their day were ranked with Ibn Arabi and Rumi and important. But none of these have yet come into English, and many are not even available yet in Arabic editions. The work that Bill Chittick did in the 1980s is still the most important published source for the ideas and the metaphysics that we have. There is a very good recent PhD thesis by a man called Richard Todd, done at Oxford, which has just become available for reading, and this contains a lot of new information of insight, of which just a little will appear in this talk. Todd disagrees with some of the emphasis that Chittick gives, and which I have probably myself been guilty of just kind of slavishly repeating. Particularly, he feels that Sadruddin does not focus, as Chittick says, especially on philosophical issues, except insofar as these issues have become an integral part of the discourse of the intellectual elite of his times. Like Ibn Arabi, he was deeply committed to the traditions of Quran and Hadith as the basis of his work and to the practice of mystical contemplation. Todd feels that what he does have is a more neutral and impersonal tone, which was well suited to the function of the wider dissemination. Todd says, by both distilling and elaborating upon his master's metaphysical and cosmological doctrines, Sardin Conovy succeeded in providing a mature and complex worldview, which was ideally placed to challenge the works of the theologians and the philosophers, who are the metaphysical enemies you had to defeat in order to become the predominant intellectual um, context of the time. For autobiographical information, we have a little information from Sadruddin's own works, including Nafahat al-Ilahiyya, The Breaths of the Divine, in which he records some of the mystical insights and visions which were given to him. And we have information from his work from works of his followers. Jami's Nafahat al-Unt, The Breaths of Intimacy, which is a 15th century work. Jami was one of the great Akbarian disseminators down the line. In this work, he describes all the great Sufi saints up until his day, including account of Sadruddin's kind of his life and those of his followers. And this has been the main source of information in the Turkish tradition until these new sources became available recently. Today, I'm also going to use a plakism in Archibald Arafin, which is the, I think, 14th, 15th century account of Rumi's life which has recently been translated into lovely clear prose by John O'Kane. This gives quite a vivid picture of 13th century Konya and the relationship between Rumi and Sadruddin, although it is appallingly one-sided, in that, as O'Kane says, its main purpose is to show Rumi as the most important spiritual figure after Muhammad in the whole of Islamic history. Therefore, most of the appearances of Sadruddin, at least on the surface, are there simply to show him as inferior to Rumi. The only text we have of Sadruddin in complete translation is his will, the Wasiyah, which Bill Chittick translated in the 1980s. This is quite a good place to start to look at the particular features of the process of Akbarian transmission 
for which Sadruddin, as in all other things, set the pattern. These are extracts from Chittik's translation of the Wasir. He says, I enjoin my friends and companions that they bury me amongst the graves of ordinary Muslims. They should wrap me in the clothing of the Sheikh, may God be pleased with him, meaning Ibn Arabi, and also in a white covering, and they should spread my, on my grave the prayer rug of Sheikh al-Hadadin, may God's mercy be upon him, meaning al-Kirmani. Let none of those who recite the Quran over graves accompany my funeral procession. No building should be built over my grave, nor should a roof be erected. Rather, let the, only the grave itself be built of strong stone, lest it fall into oblivion, and so its trace remain. Let them give arms of a thousand dirhams on the day I am buried to the weak and the poor and the beggars, both men and women, especially those who are disabled and blind. My books on philosophy should be sold and the proceeds given as arms. The rest of the books, the medical works, works on jurisprudence, Quranic commentaries, collections of prophetic traditions, etc., should be made into an endowment. My own writing should be taken to a fifidin, al-Tilimthani, one of the companions of both Rumi and Ibn Arabi. My own writings should be taken to Afifuddin so that they can be a remembrance from me to him. He should be enjoined not to be niggardly in giving them to those in whom he sees the qualifications to profit from them. End of quote. Just a couple of points here, or actually three, I think, that although Ibn Arabi died about, he died, Ibn Sajuddin's life divides pretty much, I think, between with Ibn Arabi for 32, 33 years and without Ibn Arabi for 32, 33 years. He died when he was 65. Um, although he died about 30 years before and Sadruddin had become such a great figure in his own right, it makes clear that he carried with him to his grave his reverence and affection for his two early teachers, which is a very, in a very moving way. This is the will of a truly modest man, which for me is for me reading and dealing with Connery is the is the quality that comes out the most I think for a man of such great learning and stature he was so modest secondly the degree of wealth which we will mention later I mean 1000 dirhams is a great deal of money and it reminds us that in his day Sadruddin was famous for his generosity to the poor and thirdly the wealth, in contrast to the modesty of the grave, and in fact you probably don't know that this whole area was the public graveyard in Konya, and the mosque next door, a mosque next door, was on the site of Sadruddin's house. The mosque, not the a mosque, not the one that was built there. Although inside there are still old some bookcases and such like interiors stemming from the original mosque. And if you go to the Museum of Turkish and Islamic Art in, in Istanbul, you'll see that the doors and the windows from the original mosque are now there, beautiful or date um, woodwork. But the present mosque is a later one. But a mosque was built after his death to house the endowment of books which he mentions in his will. This included a, a collection of Ibn Arabi's original writings because Konevi was his designated spiritual and literary heir 
These include an autographed footer hat, which was dedicated to Connerby and was in his possession, and Sadruddin Connerby's own copy of the Fasus al-Hikam, which is the oldest copy that is extant. These two major works of the Sheikh in these authenticated copies, along with many other wonderful things, were preserved in this building, or equivalent of it, until the 1920s. The mosque became a centre for the study of propagation of the Sheikh's work for the next five or six hundred years, in short. And on the manuscripts you have descriptions of the people who travelled from all over the Islamic world to go and actually see and make copies of the original works of the Sheikhs. It is a unique situation, this, within Islam and without, to have the works of a great thinker preserved in this way. We have from this source and from other sources associated with Sadruddin Konavi about 30 major works surviving from the lifetime of Ibn Arabi, of which maybe as many of 20 are actually in the Sheikh's own hand or written under his supervision by close followers. It's extraordinary. Do you know what we have for equivalent thinkers, Shakespeare, we have a shopping list, Aquinas, we have nothing, Eckhart, we have nothing. Even the, even contemporaries like Sufrawadi, Najm al-Kubra, there are no works from their lifetime preserved. This is a most extraordinary situation that came under the baraka of Connery at the very beginning. One thing that I have not quoted is the middle part of the will, where he talks about the Akbarian heritage. And this is because it's not clear what it means in detail. But what is clear is that he did not pass on the role of Khalifa of the seal of Mohammedan sainthood. In fact, here and in other places, he states quite clearly that this ends with him. This is why, as far as I understand it, and please, if anyone's got any other insights, let's hear them, because we don't know why this is. But my understanding is this why there's never been a formal tariqa associated with the followers of Ibn Arabi in the way that there is, say, for the Mevlevi order. Here, there is a line of transmission which passes from Sheikh to Sheikh all the way back to Sultan Veled, Rumi's son, and therefore to Rumi himself. And the Sheikh of the present community must be a blood relative. The same goes for the Qadiri order or the Shidili or the Naqshbandi, where a particular order will have a silsila going back to the founder in order to validate the standing of the present teacher. I remember Carl Ernst in Oxford showing us one of these for the Kadiri order on a kind of scroll which when unfurled went right across the room and way, way out into the corridor. This is the sort of thing that people carry to show that they are valid teachers of an order. This has never happened for the Akbarian tradition. And my own feeling about this, and again this is just what I have come to by considering the matter a great deal, is that the matter of the Mohammedan sainthood is too general and too universal to be appropriately contained within a specific order. It was and is for the whole of the Islamic tradition and ultimately I believe for the whole of humanity. It's not just for one group of initiates. And I think that this is actually what you see looking at the extent of the influence over, over the centuries, the ubiquitousness of the, of the influence, really. This lack of external form does not mean that there is not a transmission of the understanding and the degree of knowledge which Ibn Arabi opened up for humanity. On the contrary, but it comes in a different way. So I'm going to present this 
by giving you two descriptions by Sadruddin himself about his own experiences. The first comes from the Nafahat and happened about 13 years after the death of the Sheikh. I saw the Sheikh, may God be pleased with him, in the night of the Sabbath on the 17th of Shuwal 653 in the long event. There passed between him and me many words, and I told him in the course of the conversation that the effects of the names derived from the predications, Ahkam, and the predications from the states, Al-Ahwal, and the states are particularised from the essence, Avat, in accordance with a predisposition, and the predisposition is an order which is not caused by anything else. He, may God be pleased with him, was extremely delighted by this explanation and his face beamed with joy and he nodded his head. He repeated some of my words and said, excellent, excellent. I said to him, Master, you are the excellent one as you have the ability to make the human being arrive at a point where he can perceive such things. By my life, if you are a human being, the rest of us are nothing. Then I came close to him and kissed his hand and said to him, There remains for him one thing that I need. He said, Ask. I said, I desire realisation in the manner of your witnessing of the self-revelation of the essence continually and eternally. I meant by that the attainment of that which came upon him from the essential self-disclosure, beyond which there is no veil and without which there is no establishment for perfection. He said yes, then answered by saying, This is given to you. As long as you know that I have had children and companions, particularly my son Saeed Adin, and despite that, that which you ask has not been easy for any of them. Many I have killed and brought to life. Of my children and companions, those that died, died, and those that were killed, were killed. They did not attain that. I said, O oh my master, praise be to God. I meant, because of my being singled out for this excellence. I know that you bring to life and that you kill. After that we talked some more, but it is not possible to make what we said public. Then I woke up. The gift belongs to God. Just a couple of comments on this passage, which some of you, I don't think it's very well known, is it? It's been translated once or twice before. There is a phrase in the first part where he says, Master, you are the excellent one, as you have the ability to make the human being, which is Al-Insan, arrive at the point where he can perceive such things. And this has been translated by several people as a very general, you have the ability to make someone or a person arrive at these things. But in conversation with Stephen Hertenstein, we feel fairly certain that what it does mean is the man. It means you have the meaning referring to the real person, the perfect man or the perfect human. Meaning, what he's saying here, and in the phrase, you know, if you are a man, if you are a human being, that we, the rest of us are nothing. 
that Ibn Arabi has this ability, the ability to bring the interior reality of each person, al-insam, which is the perfect human reality in each of us, to the point of realisation. Pointing to Ibn Arabi's universal function in educating this degree, also pointing to what it is that he educates. Yes, not the animal man, not the psychological man, the man. In the second part about the revelations of the Tajali, this is very clearly a reference to the degree of the seal of Mohammedan sainthood. As Sadruddin Konavi put the attainment of this final degree of sainthood in which the heart of the knower becomes the locus of the divine self-manifestation at every moment into Ibn Arabi's hands. One would assume, and you know this is obviously open to lots of interpretation, that this death and killing is a reference to die before you die, and the bringing to life to the revivification of knowledge as referred to in the chapter of Jesus in Fasus Salakam. As I say, my feeling. One thing to add is that what Ibn Sadruddin Konavi is also describing here is his airship, as being an air, as is noted in other places, involves not, not just about knowing or seeing the states of this one from whom one inherits, it means tasting and encompassing them in yourself. Thus this matter of the direct connection to the essence, the private face, al-wajal khas, and the possibility of receiving the divine revelation was, in Todd's summary, a cornerstone of Sadruddin Konavi's own exposition on the nature of the real in his books. That's my first quote. Here's my second. The other quote I want to bring, um, which I've brought out several times before, is from the introduction of the Fukuk, which is Sadruddin's <coughs> own commentary upon the Fasusa of Hikam. Here he describes how he came to agree to write the book because people were asking him to elucidate the meanings of the Fasus, as they would, indeed, <laughs> as, we, as we all know. I did this despite the fact that I only asked for an explanation of the preface, the chutbah, nothing else, of this book from its author. May God be pleased with him but it was directly from God, through his grace, that he granted me the privilege of sharing with him in realising that which was revealed to him, meaning Ibn Arabi, and raising my glance to that which had been made clear to him, and of taking from God without causal intermediary, but rather from the purity of divine providence an essential binding which protects me from that which appears from the properties of the intermediaries and the characteristics of the secondary causes, the conditions and the ties. God brings about that in a pure way because of his purpose, drawing us close to him and bringing benefit to me and to them, the people he writes for on the day we arrive at him. This incident is repeated in Al-Jandi, who writes in the preface of his much more complete commentary on the Fasus. The Fakuk is quite short, 
Chittick says it's the chapter headings. In the Fukuk, Sadruddin Konevi makes a general comment on the meaning of the chapter and the wisdom that it is. It's, it's Aljandi who writes the first line-by-line commentary. We'll have a look in a moment. Jandi says in, the, in his introduction to, to the Shah Sis, While my master and guide, Muhammad ibn Ishaq ibn Yusuf al-Konavi, which was Sadruddin Konavi, was giving me a commentary on the prologue of the book, the inspiration of the world of mystery manifested its signs upon him, and the breath of the merciful began to breathe in rhythm with his breathing. The air from his exhalations and the emanation of his sake's precious breath submerged my inner and outer being. His secret Bartin governed my secret in a strange and immediate manner and produced a perfect effect upon my body and heart. In this way, God gave me to understand in the commentary of the prologue the contents of the entire book and in this proximity inspired in me the preserved contents of its secrets. When the Sheikh realised what had happened to me, he related to me that he too had asked our master, the author of the pursuit, to provide him with a commentary on the prologue which had produced in him a strange effect by virtue of which he had understood the contents of the entire work. So the obvious thing to mention here is that this direct mode of transmission carries on to the next generation after Conovy. And in fact, the Akbarian tradition is adorned with similar stories which show that it is to do with taking knowledge directly from God, not from an intermediary. This concords completely with one of the central tenets of Ibn Arabi's point of view, that is, that the real knowledge comes directly from God to the heart. It does not come through the intellect as such, through teaching and analysis. There was a quote which Stephen Hertenstein once used in the presentation, which we have never been able to find again in order to reference it, but he found it somewhere, and it was a saying of Ibn Arabi concerning his own teaching of Sadruddin, in which he said, even though he sits and hears it from me, he is taught by God. So this wonderfully summarises up this matter of the Akbarian tradition, which establishes the knowledge of the heart and does not pose intermediaries between the student and God. This first part of the talk is to do with um, Sadruddin's relationship in the Akbarian line between himself, Ibn Arabi, and his followers. Now we're going to talk about him and Rumi, which I think brings up a completely set of considerations. The two men lived and taught in Konya at the same time. They were almost exact contemporaries, and they were both highly influential throughout the Islamic lands in the centuries that followed. In fact, Ibn Arabi and Jalaluddin Rumi can be said to form the two pillars of spiritual life in the lands of the Ottomans, the Safavids in Persia and the Mughals in India and onward actually to all the, all the areas which have come under the sway of Islam since 1300. So, you know, Indonesia, Malaysia, South Africa, etc., etc., the Sudan, etc. 
it can be no coincidence <laughs> that they lived in the same town, prayed together in the same mosque, taught together, in some cases taught the same people in the same madrasas, and wrote their many works within half a mile of each other. Even a cursory reading of the source I mentioned, Aflaki, reveals that they had a strong personal relationship and they met together often both in public and in private. But the connection, which we know must be there, is not a direct or manifest one. Sadruddin was not a student of Rumi's and Rumi's was not a student, was not a student of Sadruddin. In fact, when one looks at the situation, the most striking thing is how different they were to the degree that one can say that in many ways they were actually almost the exact opposite to each other, at least in the way that tradition, which mostly means the Flaki, portrays them. Sadruddin Konovir was rich and had social standing mm. and duties to the state, whilst Rumi was poor and appears in Iflaki almost like a wandering dervish in dirty clothes and subject to bursts of ecstasy which manifests as trance-like states and turning and such like. Sajuddin Connolly writes metaphysics. He does write metaphysics. I mean, Ibn Arabi himself was much more of an ecstatic. And as you perhaps do or don't know, he wrote almost as much poetry as he did prose and is actually a major Islamic poet, not yet translated. But, but Sadruddin wrote prose, um, he, only a few little stanzas of poetry around the place. So he writes prose and metaphysics, whereas Rumi writes ecstatic poetry. Sadruddin writes in Arabic, and within the Arabic tradition, being the Khalifa of Ibn Arabi, who is from the far west of the Islamic world. Rumi writes in Persian, and in a very different Persian poetical tradition. The Arabic and the Persian poetical traditions are completely different within the Islamic world. So Rumi writes in the Persian poetic tradition and was born in the Far East in Balkh, in at the very edges of the empire. Sadruddin Konevi is portrayed, interestingly enough in the Flaki, as a Sufi teacher, as part of the spiritual establishment who teaches in his house, which is referred to as a Hanukkah or a Zawiya, a Sufi lodge. Rumi lives in the Madrasa because he was not, of course, a mystic at all, but a university teacher until Shams found him. Rumi had no education in the Sufi way that we know of, really. Or I might be sticking my neck out here, we'll say. But certainly O'Kane, in his introduction to Aflaki, says that as far as we know, Rumi lived in the Madrasa. And, and in Aflaki, they make quite a strong thing. They talk all the time about Sajjuddin Konavi as the Sufis, as opposed to Rumi, who's obviously not considered to be in that, in that group. In the way that their respective ways develop afterwards, and this thing of the Sufi is quite surprising because it's not at all how it develops afterwards, but in the way their respective ways develop, there is also a great contrast. Rumi, through his son, Sultan Velad, became the founder of one of the great Sufi Tariqas, which was established in Konya. And they have a famous practice, the Samar, which is based upon Rumi's own practice during his lifetime. As we've said, the Akbarian tradition did, through Sadruddin did not found a Tariqa. And in fact, in his will, Sadruddin Konavi orders his family and followers to leave Konya. His family and Al-Jandi moved to Damascus within a short time, while Farani went east into Iran. 
And within the Akbarian tradition, there is no set fixed practice, except that's in ways characterised by investigation of metaphysical questions. And what we call Akbarians um, come from, are found in every Tariqa. This difference in the development of the tradition creates the great problem in saying a great deal for certain about their relationship, because all the material that we have comes through Aflaki, meaning it comes through the Mevlevi tradition a couple of generations along, not from first-hand accounts, although there are some first-hand accounts in it. Aflaki's purpose is to elevate Rumi, so many of the stories are designed to show his superiority in knowledge. There's no attempt at all to portray Sadruddin in a balanced and complete way. And there's nothing that I know of, nothing that's come out yet, from the Akbarian side about Rumi. So in sources, we seem to have good sources for the, for the relationship in Aflaki and Injami, who takes from Aflaki mostly. But we have to see that it was actually written but within a Mevlevi tradition, whose, whose whole purpose was to show that they were the best tradition. We, we, we can't take it at face value. However, just to begin, I do not believe that Sadruddin and Rumi participated themselves in this rather com- crude competitiveness. These were two completely realised men living side by side and surely they knew the reality of the situation. So one nice story from Aflaki, which seems to me to have the ring of truth, seems to describe the beginning of the relationship. It says, In the beginning, Sheikh al-Sadruddin was greatly opposed to Mevlana. One night in a dream, he saw that he was massaging Mevlana's blessed foot. He woke and sought forgiveness from God. Second time, he saw the same thing. Three times he woke up and sought forgiveness from God. The last time he woke, he ordered the lamp to be set and told an attendant, go and fetch me such and such a book from the library. When the attendant was about to descend from the stairs, he saw Mevlana sitting in the middle of the staircase. He turned to the sheikh and told him this. The sheikh came and saw Mevlana sitting there. When Mevlana saw the sheikh, he stood up and they embraced one another. Mevlana said, Don't be vexed and don't ask God for forgiveness. Let it be that sometimes you massage our foot and sometimes we massage yours. (laughs) Sometimes you render service to us and sometimes we render service to you. There is concord between us, not foreignness. I'm going to give you this from, again, pinched from Todd, from the Sadruddin Conaby. He says, It is inconceivable that friends of God should diverge regarding fundamental principles. Any divergence that arises is, is either to do with secondary applications or it is that which arises between middle-ranking initiators and followers who are subject to transient spiritual states or receive manifest unveilings whereby real essences, spiritual presences and other such realities appear to them clothed in subtle semblances. However, the true significance of this kind of intuition and what God intends by it can only be known through that knowledge 
which comes from the non-manifest, purely intellectual kind of unveiling, which transcends all the subtle archetypes and material supports, and hence transcends all conditioned states and the dictates of contingent being. Gives you a taste of Conovy as well, but... I bring it because he says it's inconceivable that friends of God should diverge regarding fundamental principles. And I think that we must assume that Rumi and Sadruddin were in this essential state of knowledge. So given this, my own feeling that the differences that we see between them in the way they manifest has a meaning. And perhaps the most basic one is simply the meaning that perfection is an interior matter that can appear in different ways in different people. But more than this, I believe, because these two people both have universal functions in the spiritual unfolding of this human emergence. Therefore, there is something here about our own nature. And there is a seminal story which has been quoted recently by Stephen Hertenstein in a paper he gave in Istanbul called Spiritual Poverty, Spiritual Heavenly Riches. And this is recounted by Ishmael Hakiborsavi, a great 17th century Ottoman saint whose tomb you will mostly have visited in Borsa. He reports that one day Rumi and Konovy were sitting together. Konovy turned to Rumi and said, For us, it is to live like a king during the day and to sleep at night like a poor man, a fakir. Immediately Rumi retorted, And for us, it is to live like a poor man during the day and to sleep like a king at night. Ishmael Hakibosavi then comments that if one wants to understand something of what they are talking about, one should look at their tombs. And indeed, we all have and can see that Sadruddin Konovis, as he specified, is modest and open to the air, whereas Rumi's is a grand mausoleum visited by thousands over the year. More than this, and I myself think this is what Ishmael Haki meant, over the door of Rumi's tomb it says, This is the Kaaba of lovers. Whoever enters lacking will find completion. The Kaaba of lovers, the mysteries of the night, you know, when lovers meet. Over Sandradin Conover's tomb, which we found when we went last year, which is, this is the internal spring-like nature of the tomb. And this, we'll notice some people here. This is at the back, this is the plaque here. Your mourning is coupled to glory and country. Your door ever open to the people of need. So, over their tombs, we have, on the one hand, Rumi's reference to the night, to the carver of lovers. Over Conovy this reference to the fact of the morning in which he's rich, rumours to the night in which he is rich. And my suggestion is that the example that we have before us point together to the fact that human beings are both rich and poor in relation to God and the world. As vice-regents and the place where all the divine names manifest, we are wealthy and we have rulership. But from the aspect of being, we are poor because we have no being of our own. We are utterly dependent on God and on the world. And the Ishmael Haki story is so wonderful because it is so Akbarian in its subtlety. Not 
rich versus poor, but showing us that even in our wealth we are poor, and even in our poverty we are wealthy. Sadruddin Conover's aspect in this is to show us how to be wealthy in the service of God, not using wealth for our personal ends or from for indulgence, but how to be wealthy and in the mode of wealth towards God and given by God. Thus we have seen he was famed for his generosity towards the poor. And it's clear that his house was full of people receiving food and care and students studying and people coming for conversation and nourishment at all levels of their being. And it was, of course, his wealth which also allowed him to preserve Ibn Arabi's heritage. One of the things, the whole thing about, you know, the paper and the ink which has allowed them to remain pristine, almost. Some of these manuscripts, when you see them, look as if they were written yesterday. It's extraordinary. Sadruddin had them copied onto good paper, and he founded the WAC where they were preserved. He also cleared that he used his position to support Rumi, not financially, because Rumi was committed to a life of renunciation and asceticism, but in terms of supporting his position in town. After the foot massage influencer, Flarkey has him saying to one of his companions, This man is strengthened by God and is one of those concealed under the domes of the Almighty. Intelligent men's reason is confounded before the nature of his deeds, works and spiritual states. After today, we must look upon him with a different gaze and show him respect and reverence in a different manner. And if you look at, at the Aflaki stories, this is what he does. In story after story in Aflaki, at least in the early part of the relationship, we find Sajuddin Konavi supporting Rumi in public gatherings, inviting him to speak or to take the lesson. Or we find that when Rumi disappears from a gathering and is found turning or med meditating, in some sort of strange state, Sadruddin Conovy says something which validates him in the eyes of the people present. And so, all the time, we never find Sadruddin going to Rumi. All the time, a lot of these stories begin one day when Sadruddin was visiting the Sheikh's Hanukkah. So it's clear that Rumi was amongst these many, many people that flocked to Sadruddin's Hanukkah for converts really. they came for converts or their public gatherings I'll read you one in which, in which Rumi comes in and so they go one day Sadruddin was engaged in giving a lesson about Hadith and all the great men of the world were there so again in Aflaki we get this constant reference to the fact that Conovy was surrounded by men of stature and learning all the way through and this is one that Faflaki takes in different ways, but I'd suggest is what you would actually say giving a feed line to someone. I think if you say it in the, in the, in, in the theatre, it's a feed line. It's transmitted that one time the late Sultan Rukhuddin held a splendid entertainment in his palace and all the sheikhs and prominent men came. Qadir Siraj Adin sat on the seat of honour and Sheikh Sadruddin in the other seat of honour and all the prominent men sat occupying the high and low places. Suddenly Mevlana came in with his disciples, and they seated themselves in the middle of a palace around the water basin. As much as the Sultan and the Parvana exerted themselves, Mevlana would not sit in a higher seat. Then Sheikh Sadruddin said, 
all living things come from water. Merlana said, nay, all living things come from God. All the prominent men left their seats for the lower level. And right there and then a great Samar took place. <laughs> so, you know, Aflaki, oh, Sheikh Sadruddin, his knowledge is not equal to Rumi's. But if you read it, I think, properly, which Sadruddin is giving him the feed line. Do you know, Rumi sat by the water, Sadruddin brings up the water. This was Conovy bringing Rumi out and up. Towards the end of its life, it's, Rumi, it's clear actually that Rumi had gained such support that he was in many ways an equal and no longer needed this kind of um, this, um, mentoring. But there is one interesting story at the end which shows that Sadruddin's function extended beyond Rumi's own lifetime. Rumi, by the way, specified that Sadruddin should read, read the prayers at his funeral, which is um, a great honour and one of the, gives us some indication of how he saw comedy quite apart from the filter of Avlaki. Um, and he managed to do this, although, in fact, he fell ill almost immediately afterwards and nine months later died. But before he died, he was able to do a final service, and this is from Avlaki. A group of people went to the ruler complaining about the Samar, saying, the Samar is absolutely forbidden. We accept that Rumi practised the Samar during his time when it was allowed for him. But despite that, his disciples should not insist on practising this reprehensible innovation and display it openly. Prohibiting such unwarranted innovation is one of your duties, and making an effort in this noble regard is required of you. The Pavana rose and went to Sadruddin. He reported the situation to him, and that day all the prominent men of Konya were present in that place. The sheikh said, if you accept my words and trust what the dervishes say and your belief in Mevlana's person is firm, my God, my God, do not interfere in this matter. Do not enter into what men of ill will say and do not argue, for in a sense that would be to turn away from the friends of God and that is inauspicious. Indeed, the innovations of the friends of God are like the sunnah of the noble prophet. So if we believe this story, we would say that the practice of Samar, as it was passed on after Rumi's lifetime, owes its existence to the, the intervention of Sadruddin with the Pavana just after Rumi's death. I think that's more than enough. There's loads more to say. But Thank you very much. <laughs>